The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigean Technologies. Today we welcome my friend and colleague, Emily Patterson. Emily is an associate professor in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences at The Ohio State University. She is known for her application of naturalistic decision-making and cognitive engineering in healthcare. She did groundbreaking work in barcode medication administration when that technology was new, highlighting unintended consequences and making recommendations to improve the integration of new technologies into clinical workflow. Emily co-authored the National Standard for Summative Usability Testing Methodology for Ensuring the Safety of Electronic Health Records, and that was published by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, as many of us know it. She has conducted applied research on clinical reminders, alarms, transitions of care, and many other critical topics, uh, with, generally with a focus on improving the efficiency usability, and accuracy of clinical documentation and electronic health records. Welcome, Emily. I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And I listen to every single one of these podcasts. And I thank you for inviting all of my friends to share their um, thoughts. And I actually found myself missing everybody. And I enjoyed hearing all of their, their voices. So this is a real service that you and Brian are doing for our community. Well, thanks for mentioning that. It has really been fun and I have the same experience. It's so fun to connect with people and just hear their voices in this kind of unusual context. It's been really fun. I agree. So I wanted to kind of go back to the beginning of your career, Emily. Uh, You were one of the first NDM researchers I know who made inroads, or I knew at the time, who made inroads into the healthcare community. Um, My memory at that time is that there were several physicians and nurses who became interested in NDM, but there weren't many people who had an NDM background who were able to get into healthcare, make inroads with that community. And so I wondered if you could kind of reflect back and think about that transition from your graduate work with NASA mission control and military intelligence analysis and, and, and talk about how you made that kind of leap into healthcare. How did that evolve? Thanks so much for asking that, Laura. And if I could remind you, one of the reasons why I met you was because you also were doing work in healthcare at the time, <laughs> one of the few. So. I, was, I was trying, but I was really having trouble getting traction and you, you really did. It was hard. Um, So pretty much everything in healthcare for me was set up by Dave Woods and Richard Cook. So Dave Woods was my PhD advisor um, at Ohio State University, where I got a PhD in industrial and systems engineering. Richard Cook is um, a a valued member of the naturalistic decision-making community, who's an anesthesiologist, who is just, you know, a renowned expert in patient safety. And I remember they had... um, a simulation where they had healthcare people pretend that they were aviation perspectives the day after an accident. It was a simulation designed by Richard Cook. And he had everyone reflect and learn from the incident and how are we not learning from incidents in healthcare. 
And I even remember standing in the hallway of the hotel where we were staying the night after the simulation. And I said, you know, you should do this. You should do that. You should um, add this. You should add that. This was wonderful. But what about this? And I just remember Dave would saying, then you have to help us, Emily. (laughs) 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 I ended up actually reporting to both of them immediately after my PhD, which, as you mentioned, was in other domains, NASA, Johnson, and uh, the Air Force Intelligence world. And so I, if, if it's okay, I'd like to go ahead and take some time to go through those two domains and how the transition worked. Yeah, that'd be great. Because the NASA mission control domain um, had um, an easier transition than the Air Force intelligence analysis. So it was almost seamless. So my master's thesis was really um, created by Dave Woods. And he said, you know, everyone talks about shift changes in healthcare, but they don't actually um, lay it out. What is the science? What are the strategies that people are using? How does it impact this complex coordination in this really interesting setting that's oriented at safety, NASA Johnson? And so I did observations in the field, which was amazing to sit there and actually watch STS-76 mission, which was an anomalous mission where they had a leak in the auxiliary power unit. And I was watching to see um, how they did uh, communication across their shift changes. And then what happened is immediately when I was in healthcare, I was doing observations of nurses at their shift changes and eventually uh, physician sign outs, which is um, at the end of a sort of scheduled work period Um, The physician would uh, tell the next physician taking over, like an emergency department, what to do. And that's when I realized how much I had missed in my research at NASA Johnson, because all these things that just felt normal and um, the way we do things around here in NASA Johnson weren't being done in healthcare. So just for one example, um, the way they did the shift changes at the NASA Johnson Space Center um, where we were observing in Houston was they had a front room where every sort of engineering console had one person who was assigned to take care of the electrical systems or the mechanical systems. And then they had a back room of two or three or four people who were supporting them. And they were talking to each other on a dedicated communication um, device we called the voice loop. And so they were continuously talking by audio. And so what they did is when the front and back room changed over, when the shift was over, um, they would have the person who was taking over give a briefing from the back room to the front room while the previous shift listened in. And so they could have um, the front room and the back room controllers were correcting any misunderstandings that were happening between the people who were coming in Uh, having the back room tell the front room what they had understood had happened in the previous shift. And then all the front room people told the person called Flight, who actually was an astronaut who talked to the astronauts on the shuttle, told them what they had learned from their briefing. So it was an even shorter version. And that update was listened to by every single person in the entire system, including people at home who are watching NASA TV. And so there were so many checks and balances to make sure that everyone truly knew um, what was important about what had happened and what the implications on the plans were. 
So this is the sort of thing, you know, probably had 30 of these types of aha moments that came from thinking about what happened in NASA and then what happened in um, the healthcare setting. So let me just ask a question about that. I have never observed NASA, but I have observed some healthcare handoffs. And um, uh, part of what I see is that there are lots of interruptions and we plan to have five minutes for this, but um, the surgery went long. And so we're just going to, you know, try to do it quickly or someone's exhausted as they're going off the shift. It sounds like with NASA, um, the time was a little more protected for the handoff. It was. And that was one of the things that Emily Roth and I identified early on as almost a cultural difference was I observed people who wanted to talk to the mission controllers while they were conducting what took about, you know, a half hour to an hour to do this shift change. And everybody knew, do not interrupt them while they're talking or listening. Hmm. And even so, there would still be people who would want to say, well, just let me ask them if they want pizza, you know, <laughs> <I'm gonna laughs> order. just let me ask them real quick. Uh, and they would be stopped. You know, there was sort of almost like a gate where uh, if you were plugged in, and that was one of the things about the NASA Johnson setting, uh, which no longer exists now, um, but at the time you were what's called jacked in. So your communication jack was a physical thing that put you into the voice loop system. And one of the physical changes of shift was the previous shift would jack out and the new shift would jack in. <laughs> So there was a, you know, a jack for that shift. And while all these updates were going on, the people coming in would use an alternate jack and then they would take over the primary jack. And so the idea was that that physical plug-in into the system was a protected space. And during that time, nobody interrupted them. So I brought this up actually at a nursing conference. I think I had a, a keynote presentation at a large nursing conference, and I gave this anecdote. And I actually had someone stand up and say, in nursing, what we need as our primary objective is for social relations to be better. And for somebody to interrupt a nurse with, here's a picture of my baby or my friend's baby that I wanna show you during a handoff is what we need to be promoting. That is absolutely our top priority. <laughs> And I actually said back to the person, truly, you can't wait 10 minutes till the handoff is done and then show the picture. And she actually pushed back at me and said, that's exactly the kind of thinking that's hurting healthcare. Interesting. <laughs> so she and I just agreed to disagree, but it, it's a truly different culture to think that, you know, the handover communication is, is just, you know, worthy of interruption that it's not our top priority. I, I do think that that's a difference. Well, and it seems like in the healthcare culture, there's just this belief that everyone should be able to do and attend to six things at a time. And I don't think there are many work cultures where we have that expectation. I mean, there are others, but um, yeah, it, it's a strange, it's a, yeah. That's an interesting insight because there are some interventions that are being tried in healthcare where nurses will put on red vests when they are not to be interrupted or not distracted, where communications will 
be pushed to pagers instead of to cell phones so that there's fewer calls. And sometimes there is a bit of a feeling that those people who are willing to have those interventions can't really do the work. It's sort of, um, we uh, are not good enough to do the work as we're supposed to, so we have to have these crutches. (laughs) Yeah, I've I've read about that same thing, that idea that they're like slacking or prima donnas or, yeah, can't, can't handle it. It's, yeah, it's strange. And then if you're willing, I'd like to tell my um, my intelligence analysis story, because I think that that transition is kind of fascinating one as well. Yes, please. Okay. So the the Dayton people, the Air Force intelligence analysts at the time they were called NAIC, now they're called NASIC, are experts in reading through text documents that are classified and unclassified documents that have intelligence on something that they are an expert in. So if somebody is an expert in satellites, they will read about satellites all day long um, and then synthesize for some kind of congressional person or staffer or uh, military people, whoever the customer is, what is actionable about that intelligence, what they're finding out, and they're incredibly careful. And so the NASA mission control setting was a seamless transition for me. Immediately I saw the benefits, but I actually took me about 15, 20 years Hmm. (laughs) before I realized how much of that work was directly relevant to diagnostic safety, uh, particularly for physicians. So Hardeep Singh invited me to go to a meeting where they were prioritizing more foundation funding for diagnostic safety and they had uh, invited experts create uh, post-it notes of what are the ideas that we could fund for research to improve diagnostic safety in healthcare. And a lot of focus that was being presented was things like, you know, we have to make sure that people are not biased and that they don't have errors. And it struck me that Bill Elm, myself, Dave Woods, and a few others had put together similar kind of post-it notes <laughs> about how to help intelligence analysts do a better job. So I dug back into that post-it note compilation that we had from way back when and compared the post-it notes from the one meeting to the other. (laughs) And there was so much overlap. It was ridiculous. Um, And so some of the things that were missing, for example, from the healthcare meeting is we had talked about supporting the observability of other analysts down collect activities. And what we meant by that is what search terms were people who are working with you using. So if you need a specialist in nuclear power and they're providing a part of your analysis, what what terms are they using and are they biased from the beginning with what terms they're using and the specific bias that they would tell me about is for it or against. And what they meant by that was, are you for something, like I want to use natural gas for energy, or are you against it? Are you against it? And so they would find search terms that represented both sides and even have their folders organized in a for it and against it um, paradigm. And then the idea was you wanted to see if your expert who was helping you with your analysis had something just as uh, systematic or rigorous in how they were searching and what they were looking at. And... I just thought, wow, I mean, that's so far beyond anything that anybody would 
ever come up with in healthcare. But the second you start thinking about that, you could be like, well, so when the resident physician is briefing me on this patient, what labs do they look at? Have they looked at all the labs? Have they looked at all the images? How many progress notes did they read? Did they read the pro- you know, so you could you could actually imagine that it would be helpful to start looking at some of the things we had to come up with for intelligence analysis and pretty directly map it on. And I was encouraged to create a journal article with these findings, and it's just sort of on my plate of something to work on sometime. Interesting. Yeah. I would not have guessed that parallel would have uh, uh, leapt out either. Um, but but this idea of, of just people developing strategies to, uh, to uh, I don't know, uh, uh, make their, their analysis deliberately more, more comprehensive. Is, is that, is it really about comprehensiveness? Well, that particular thing uh, about the observability of their down collect terms mm-hmm. is related to the bias of the terms. So oh, if you always search on terrorists, um, then you're missing the opportunity to search on freedom fighters. I see. I see. I see. Yeah. 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 So, so when I tried to lay that out with a colleague, I think it's more, did you look at labs? (laughs) So it's, it's less, um, the bias of the source is less of an issue, but for the healthcare domain, it is more about sort of the comprehensiveness. So it's more comprehensiveness in healthcare and more bias in the intelligence analysis setting. Yeah. Makes sense. Very cool. Very cool. So as you are doing this work in healthcare, and I, I mean, I understand that you work with physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists and, and folks in all, all aspects of healthcare. I'm wondering what kind of reactions uh, do you get from healthcare professionals, professionals when you talk about this NDM perspective and these NDM methods? Yeah, this is such a great question because I feel like much of my expertise in working with healthcare is more about learning the audience and learning where various groups are coming from than really about advancing my own knowledge. <laughs> because the intersection between various groups and where I'm coming from are different based on where they're coming from. But even so, there, there are uh, sort of three reactions that are somewhat discipline independent. So I'll go with those. Um, First one is whenever I talk about naturalistic decision-making and specifically macrocognition functions and the joint cognitive system, there is immediately uh, too much jargon, just say what you mean. Mm. And literally, I, I gave a paper that I published saying, here's the macrocognition functions, here's how they relate to diagnosis and ambulatory care, outpatient care settings, literally there were these blogs where people were like, I don't even know what she said. Like it was just, you know, please translate this for me kind of feeling. And so there's sort of two ways that that's worked. Sometimes they'll just say, well, what you mean is this. And usually the this that they give me is so far off, hmm. you know, so they'll be like, well, what you're really just talking about is making a mistake. Well, okay. You know, <laughs> um, so they'll try and put sort of like non-technical words that are sort of in the space of decision-making on it. And then we just can't, and then they try and sort of define that word to be what my jargony word was. So what's been more effective more recently has been taking the conversation into driving. 
So we literally like try and come up with analogies in driving. Okay, so are you talking about an automated braking system that incorrectly determines the speed of the car ahead? Or are we talking about setting the automated braking system setting? You know, <laughs> so we've actually been able to get somewhat specific about driving as a way to talk about how their analogies relate. And then we wrote the paper and we included the driving scenario. And the response was, why do you have the driving scenario? <laughs> so they made us take it out of the paper because it made no sense to them. But it was the way we got there. And yeah. then after we got there, we sort of didn't need it anymore. <laughs> so I found that really interesting uh, as a way to get through to them. So I, I've started using automated driving everywhere. And then sometimes when I try to put it in their language, you know, so I'll be like, well, what, what the analogy is in your world is this. I've actually literally had, and usually it's somebody who's really bright and really tried hard to read my papers before I came. Somebody will stand up and say, that's not it. Oh. <laughs> you, you made the wrong, like, that's not the right one. Um, and I'm not sure what in what you presented or is in your papers relates to this problem, but let me tell you what the problem is and then we can get there. And so literally like after I've given a presentation to a large group, we'll be having this discussion afterwards. And I distinctly remember this one person saying, I'm an emergency department physician. My job is to say quick working diagnosis. Where does a patient need to go? That's my job. If I actually do a definitive diagnosis, I'm not doing my job. Because after I diagnose, I can't treat the patient. So my job is to figure out who could treat the patient and get them there with something that's probably wrong. But then what happens is the people who receive the patient assume I've done way more work than I've done cognitively, and they get stuck with the quick working diagnosis that I gave the patient, which I wanted to be rethought. And so I need to put a warning label on this patient. You know, don't trust this diagnosis, but I'm pretty sure he's in the right place. Get the patient some care, but start all over again. But he sort of described that it was almost liability, almost reputation, almost workload easier for the person receiving the patient to just be like, well, the ED physician said this, so I'm going to keep treating that way. And so then we could be like, oh, okay. So what you're talking about in the rigor metric is that you have not looked at uh, these things and the sense-making process yet, and you want them to look at them. And so maybe you could highlight what you've looked at and what you have and what you recommend that they look at. So that, that's been an interesting one. And then the third reaction is the one that got Jason Salim so frustrated that he said, we have to write a paper. So uh, Jason Salim and I wrote a paper and also Bob Weirs and I wrote a paper where we just sort of said, it's not these things. And the least keeps getting longer. Uh, so I had someone tell me, oh, you're an implicit bias person. You need to work on the project. Or you do debiasing training. That's what we need. Or we really need to t teach physicians how not to make mistakes. You're going to create the, the training for that. Or else mindfulness and sort of let's teach people to think before they act kinds of um, interventions. And if I say I'm not an expert in them, then they'll go and find somebody who is an expert in them, who I think will hurt. Right. <laughs> and, you know, not value macrocognition. So I started saying, okay, I'm an expert. Go ahead and put me on. And then I'll rewrite that part. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
yes, that's that's been my um, reaction so far. So okay, so this is so interesting to me. So so this macrocognition, one of the and even as you start to unpack that and talk about uh, components of that sense making, whatever people find that just too much jargon. And, and so the, the one success method you found is really successful is to talk about it in concrete ways in a, a, a kind of neutral task. So this is not your world of work. It's not my world of work. It's driving. Um, so and that, or we can both agree that neither one of us is an expert in it. <laughs> right. Or probably have similar levels of expertise. We both drive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that seems kind of brilliant to me, actually. Um, so I just I wanted to kind of emphasize that um, as a, a, a powerful strategy you have there. Um, and then that last bit you were saying about people taking what you're doing and adding uh, a new label that's kind of a, a, a buzz phrase right now, debias training or or mindfulness training, um, that is interesting. Because <laughs> um, then it requires you to figure out what they mean by debias training and how you're different. Well, actually what I do is I just define it my way. Oh, so, so keep the label. Yep. If, if you're funding and, and interested in debias training, that's me. So let me tell you about the strategies that experts use that are sometimes successful and sometimes not, and how we figure out when they're sometimes not and what we do when they're not, and that's called debiasing training. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I mean, because I imagine part of why they've come to you in the first place is they know something about your work and that's what they want. They just don't have the right label. So I think that there are these fads and people say mindfulness, 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 mindfulness. Uh, you do human stuff. You do mindfulness, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I know I want to work with you. So can you just call what you're doing mindfulness? <laughs> yeah. 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 So interesting. I just want to go on record in, in defense of some of the macrocognition terminology, although I will not defend macrocognition as a term, but Things like problem detection and sort of, you know, making sense of things and, uh, you know, decision making and, and managing uncertainty. I, I found that people sort of naturally grok those terms. Is that not your experience? I think it's uh, Dave Wood putting the re up there. So in, in Dave's podcast, he talked about how he had the single slide at the naturalistic decision making conference where all he had was R.E., so I, I do think when you say replanning, they're like, do you mean planning? So there is some of it is that re, and I keep putting that in there because if you don't have the replanning, if you just talk about planning, then it puts them in this space where they're trying to calculate dosages of radiation. So they, they sort of miss the idea that there is a plan that's ongoing and then you have to modify it. So part of it is simply that idea that something's already been started is not as easy as if you start from nothing. And so they're pushing against the idea that something's already been started. Right. Yeah, I just, um, I guess my approach is to sort of speak as plainly, what I think is as plainly as possible. Uh, and in lots of different domains, 
people, you know, they have these sorts of experiences where they're trying to make sense of things and they're trying to, you know, manage uncertainty. And so the, I, I guess I suspect we, we might have more success than other folks sort of working with, you know, microcognition kind of terminology, but, um, but and the macrocognition label sort of throws a lot of people off anyway, but, um, but yeah, so, so you're suggesting that people are more comfortable with sort of talking about ongoing activity than uh, sort of carving out uh, boxes, if you will, to, to sort of plug their, their work into. They're more used to just talking about work in a flow. The opposite. I think that oh, yeah. when they want to self-reflect on their domains, it's easier for them to oversimplify and pretend there's a brand new patient who was just diagnosed with something mm. and you're doing a medicate their first medication order ever. So it's not that they have 14 medications already. Right. <laughs> you have right. to figure out which ones relate to it, but they were newly diagnosed with diabetes. Now you're going to order metformin. What does that look like? It's easier for them to think that through than to think through the more complex work. And so, when you're talking about managing uncertainty, that has that sort of in-between feeling where it could go either way. Uh, so that that might be a stronger um, way to interact with people than to say uh, sense-making or replanning kind of language. Yeah. So 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 you've investigated uh, lots of different domains. Um, and, uh, and your work, I think is, is well known in our community. I'm kind of curious about what you're doing today. What, what's the most exciting thing you're working on today? Yeah, I'm so glad, uh, to hear you ask that. So I'm super excited because we got funded with the University of North Carolina and North Carolina State University and Ohio State with myself. We have a collaboration to reduce morbidity and mortality for what we're calling the mother-baby dyad uh, after birth. And so we've been analyzing what we call unexpected care events, which are coming back to the hospital or coming to an urgent um, gynecological clinic that was unscheduled. So it's an unscheduled care event and it's similar to what they call a bounce back, where a patient comes back when they shouldn't, <laughs> back to the hospital. And from our data, about 45% are the mother and about 55% are the baby. And the return has implications for the other party. <laughs> so if you have some problems in the mother, you might have some problems in the baby. Or if you have some problems in the baby, you might have some problems in the mother. And what we're finding out is that it's really hard to communicate those things. So let's say you find out that a baby uh, has some improper medication in their blood, <laughs> which means the mother is using some uh, illegal medication substance. The, the protocol would be that you would call the hospital where the mother has already been discharged three weeks ago and tell somebody who then throws it in the trash. Because what are they going to do? They're not seeing the mom. They can't write a note without seeing the mom. And so there's no, and if you put in the baby's chart, then the person taking care of the mom can't see the baby's chart. 
<laughs> so there's no like way for pediatricians and ob people to communicate uh, these issues that affect both sides. And so it's just a really, really interesting challenge to think through about how do you identify who's high risk? How do you communicate it? How do you support it in this complex setting? And then one of the other insights we have right now is just the workflow for bringing interpreters into the situation. So you can have a mom be in the hospital for three days who's never been asked whether or not she wants a meal after her birth. Because you bring in the interpreter for when the physician comes in and wants to talk about medical things, but you might not bring the interpreter in for when the nurse is just doing a quick peek. And so we're thinking through like, are there ways to use magnets or icons or quick apps where you can have, you know, point to food or something just for these more simple communications so that we don't have to bring an interpreter and just for these kind of uh, basic care questions. Interesting. So the goal here is to, as it sounds like on the first part, the goal is to consider where those gaps are within the electronic healthcare records for either side of the dyad. You know, we're being very ambitious. We're going to reduce mortality. So yeah. our goal is to identify where people are needing care that you're not expecting which means that you couldn't predict at the hospital time that they would need care. So some babies present with jaundice after they leave. Some moms um, have problems breastfeeding after they leave the hospital. And if you don't predict that that's going to happen, just take the breastfeeding example. You could have a baby lose 14% of their weight in the hospital, but you missed it. What that means is that if somebody is exclusively breastfeeding, they simply can't produce enough milk to keep the baby um, functional. And so if you exclusively breastfeed, you can actually end up with, you know, long-term neurological problems because you have gone with exclusive breastfeeding as your strategy. And so you want to identify which moms like literally can't produce enough milk to support babies while they're in the hospital before they go home. So if the baby comes back in because the baby's not being fed essentially enough, then we can um, identify that by using electronic health record data. That does seem like a very ambitious project. So, so you're partnered with the other organizations. Um, how are you working with them? Which, which pieces of this are, are you all taking and, and what is the role of the other groups? Oh, that's a great question. So we are infusing naturalistic decision-making, human factors engineering, cognitive systems engineering, whatever you want to call it, into every single aspect of the project. So we have qualitative interviews that have been conducted with moms, uh, non-English speaking moms, healthcare providers. We have shadowed people in the hospital setting. So we've watched people, even during COVID, we have watched people. We have 72 hours of video that is being taped right now. They're allowing us to tape right now, 72 hours of video of the postpartum right after birth process for consenting moms and babies. And so we're going to analyze that video for up to 30, what we're calling dyads. Then we have um, 
uh, focus groups that we're going to conduct. We're going to create prototypes and think about, you know, use a human-centered design process with design experts, uh, Carolina Gill and Kelly Umstead. And then we are on the machine learning side, we have 6,300 bursts from a year and a half that we're analyzing to see if we can use these machine learning techniques to identify people at risk from what we're calling indicators. So uh, data in the electronic health record that suggests that there might be internal bleeding or there might be weight loss of the baby that's greater than you would expect. So everything, we're doing everything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> wow, that's such important work, Emily. Um, which kind of leads to my next question. I mean, you've done so many interesting projects um, in your career. I'm, I wonder what, what is the work you're most proud of? Ah, oh, you know, this was a really hard one for me because I, I knew that you might ask this. And so I'm going to give two answers. <laughs> good, good. Um, so the first one is I, I am very attached to the first project I ever worked on in healthcare, which is barcode medication administration. So my story with that was the Institute of Medicine said Congress in a bipartisan fashion wants to force uh, the healthcare industry to implement health information technology. Emily, you come and you represent the human factors engineering uh, vision of the world in terms of what health information technology could be used. And before the meeting was convened, it was a two-day meeting, which by the way, I think you can even still see what I presented. I think it's still public even now. Um, and so they had people present. So there was uh, somebody from Wisconsin who had a positive experience with barcode medication administration. There was somebody else who had uh, done a Pixis system, which is um, a vending machine for drugs. There was somebody else who did smart ID pumps. So they were searching for the right technology to force hospitals to implement. And what happened was every single person who presented, who was selected to be what I could call a positivist, somebody who was selected in order to say how great the technology was, every single one went up there and to their credit said, we had a great experience, but do not do this. Mm. <laughs> Here's all the problems. And so every single one of them explicitly said formally, you know, on the record, do not do this. And so at the end of the day, what happened was nobody had presented on electronic health records. And so they said, well... What about electronic health records? How bad could that be? You're just giving access to data. <laughs> <laughs> Simple. <laughs> and so that's how that happened. But the, the Veterans Health Administration uh, had sort of been given a heads up that we were heading towards barcode medication administration as the technology. So they had actually gone ahead and implemented it before this meeting, sort of like the national experiment for VA, and then we'd roll it out to everybody in the country. And so I was able to get in on the ground floor where they said 132 hospitals and 128 nursing homes, boom, do it. So from nothing to full implementation, it's going to happen. I was able to observe before it went in, after it went in, in different care settings. I was able to work with the, the design team directly, and I, I did a free usability test for them, and they said, well, you know, 
uh, we don't think we need to do usability testing. We do beta testing. We put it in two hospitals and then go and interview and see what the problems are. And I said, wouldn't you like to know what the problems are like before you implement? (laughs) (laughs) And so the design team at the VA made a formal recommendation after we did a free usability test for them that all internally developed software at the VA has to be usability tested before implementation. And that was implemented. And that's why now today there's just so many people doing usability testing in the VA from when, when there was nothing. There's even a directorate in the human factors engineering that none of that existed. So I am most proud of that because we had significant changes to the software. We created a cover sheet and that was implemented. We had lots of papers, lots of um, national interest. So that that I'm most pr- proud of that project. But the other project I'll mention is the the creating the standard for usability testing for electronic health records was probably, I think, it, when I look back, it's going to be the height of my career. I was really proud of that work to create a national standard for how usability testing should be conducted for validation purposes from a human factors engineering perspective for electronic health records before they could sell them. Yeah, I mean, I have used that standard, used the the publication to guide work I have done. It, it really is really powerful. And uh, I think the healthcare community has been looking for something like, how, how do we start? What do we do? And it's just such a nicely written, clear, great examples. Here's at least a place to start, like at least do this much. <laughs> you might want to do more, but here's here, here's a, a great starting place. Yeah. Well, I want to compliment you on that because I've looked at the work that you've done and you've even gone above and beyond the standard. And I've seen other people, other teams um, sort of subvert the intent of the standard <laughs> where um, they were able to apply it in ways where it showed there was no problems at all. Nothing was a problem uh, when you know that there are problems. And so I do think how it's used really matters and how much the person who uses it knows human factors really matters. So one of the things that I'm trying to do now, we'll see if anyone is interested, is I've created a usability and user experience in healthcare graduate certificate. So it's four three-hour courses that anybody anywhere in the world can take. It's completely asynchronous online. And I've designed it basically to try and explain what that standard is and what it was trying to accomplish. So we'll see who shows up. I'm teaching the first class of it this semester. We haven't even started marketing it yet. And I did have eight people sign up and six of them were just from the medical center who I had never reached out to or didn't know. And they're not even getting a degree. They're just taking the class. So we'll, we'll see. Um, hopefully, hopefully there will be some, some interest in that. That's awesome. That's awesome. I do think there is a hunger for this in the healthcare community. People want to know how to do this and how to do it well. Um, and I'm glad they're turning to you. That's awesome. Uh, all six of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said you haven't marketed it yet. It's you just that other people don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my next question um, is also a, a question I really like. So you and I have talked about um, how nice it is to be kind of at this place in our careers. So we're, we're no longer just starting out and wondering if anyone's ever going to publish anything we do and, you know, just trying to figure out how to get 
um, any traction at all, we're, we're really in a place in a career, in our careers where we can focus on doing work that has a positive impact. And you've clearly um, been able to carve out a space like that for yourself. And I wondered what advice you have for uh, people who are earlier in their careers who are trying to forge a path to do meaningful work. It's such a great question, particularly for the healthcare space. So I have developed a little cottage industry where I charge nothing. <laughs> so it's a cottage industry of like a cheap cottage. But uh, <laughs> of people who, you know, uh, your colleagues from, uh, from trained by Gary Klein, you know, people who have worked in military settings and people who have done naturalistic decision-making who decide that they want to go into healthcare and be academics. And I have, basically started sort of mentoring these people into, so when you transition from, you know, the military to healthcare, here's some ways that you might, you know, frame what you're doing, or here's the kinds of teams that you might collect together for a proposal. Uh, you want an MD, you want a nurse, you need somebody who has a master's after their name, just sort of laying out the unwritten rules of the healthcare community to try and get a jump start, But then what I end up doing, you know, is that's what they come to me for, basically, is sort of almost the formatting requirements of a proposal. But then what I end up doing is just giving them my opinions on what they should be working on. And what I've started doing is releasing my own opinions and instead asking them to answer a question. And so I say you have to fill in the sentence of what upsets me is when. So if you can say what upsets me is when then you might have an idea for a proposal or something to work on. And it's not, you know, what upsets me is when my colleagues mean to me. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, in healthcare, uh, what is it that upsets you? And for example, I, I won't give his name because I didn't give his, get his permission, but I had a colleague who said, it's when people think that measuring the times of nurses is the most important thing in their quality of care. It's not about how timely they are. It's about, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then you say, okay, well, maybe what you need to do is create a way to have that be measured and fed back to the nurses on how they're doing. Um, so what upsets me is when I worked with a colleague and she said, uh, when the COVID-19 patients are sent away from the hospital and back to the nursing homes. And so we came up with a proposal idea where we would put a tent on, on the parking lot of the nursing home where the COVID-19 patients could go instead of back into the nursing home setting. And we'll see if that gets funded. Um, so that's the sort of what upsets me is when. And then similarly, I'll ask people, and this, this trick I got from Emily Roth, um, ask people what they do in their extra moments. So when that meeting is canceled or when you just happen to have, you know, four hours in a row that you weren't expecting to have, where do you put that extra energy? Do you put it into publications? Do you put it into talking with people who might fund you? Do you put it into training students? Do you put it into teaching something? Do you try and disseminate your work to a policymaker? So what you do in that extra time kind of says what you really care about. And then what I try and do is turn the idea that they have to fit into a box on their head. So people will say you have to get an NIH grant as what, at what they call the RO1 level. So you're supposed to get a million dollar grant submitted to NIH, and that's how you get um, promoted in healthcare. And I say, well, okay, what are you doing, you know, with your spare time? 
And somebody will tell me, okay, well, I'm a nurse, but I used to work in a medical device company. And I just keep forming these coalitions of industry people to really talk about how can we get nurses better supported by health information technology? How can we get it into the field? How can we create research that will impact them? And I say, well, forget about the NIH grant. Ask every industry for $15,000, create a consortium, get $200,000 or $300,000 out of that consortium, have it you know, work together, create months where you all meet together and have or have them donate money to you at, to the university as a gift and then there's no taxes on it so it goes farther. And that's going to be your funding mechanism from now on. And you've just created a new path for yourself and, and you make that be your argument for moving forward. So I really like this, just kind of helping people unpack what matters to them and then think creatively about how to get there. Um, it's really just interviewing, right? Isn't yeah. it just yeah, I'm interviewing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but as you're talking, I'm thinking about how would I fin- finish this sentence? What upsets me? And what do I do when I have those spare moments? So yeah, this is, this is really nice. All right, I have a sentence for you to finish. Okay. It goes, um, let's see. I know you are an NDM researcher because you. Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I say it's because they have picked the right leverage point. So I called my research lab leverage point engineering with the idea being that naturalistic decision-making gives you the conceptual foundation to pick a combination of technology, expertise, new features, and a problem in a domain, that there's going to be something in that leverage point, in that design space, that's going to make a really big difference to the field. And so if you are going to support experts in doing cognitive work, if you're doing it based on really knowing what the problems are, either because you observed, you interviewed, or you have a really good subject matter expert working with you, so you actually know what the real problems are. And if you're avoiding these oversimplifications, so if you don't say, well, we're going to just replace these error-prone humans, or we'll put a whole new technology in and that'll take care of it, uh, or we just need to have people be aware of their own issues so that they can avoid them, so if you're not doing that and you come up with a good leverage point, then I, to me, that means that you've done NDM. Excellent. That is a long sentence, but it is a perfect answer. <laughs> well, actually, I also give them extra points for defining a leverage point because I did publish in an NDM proceedings once. <laughs> but most people I know can't. <laughs> I love that answer, the leverage point. It's because in some ways it's about perspective. Like you're 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 looking for what's gonna allow you to make a difference here. As and honestly, to- I got the idea from Bob Weirs, um, who was just a tremendous mentor to me and, and incredibly influential in the NDM field. He and I started defining definitions of handoffs based on what people thought interventions would help. So we distinguished between people who said they wanted to standardize content from people who said they wanted to 
make sure that there's a shared decision making that occurs during the shift change and that the cognition is better from the shared decision making. So we, we came up with these alternative frames, but we started with the solutions and worked backwards. Interesting. Very cool. All right. So um, I am wondering if you think about um, kind of the big questions or issues the healthcare community is facing, um, what are what what are one or two things you would really like to see the NDM community address? Oh, so much. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I guess I would start with the hugest pain point and also the biggest opportunity is electronic health. So we now have electronic health records implemented in nearly all United States hospitals and outpatient clinics. So we now have a large repository of data that we did not have before. And so that's why I want to start looking at data mining and applying the idea of defining strategies experts use to identify high-risk cohorts. So a patient cohort is a group that you want to intervene on. And so trying to elicit from our experts, uh, you're an anesthesiologist, um, sleep apnea is one of the predictors of respiratory compromise problems after surgery. So what respiratory compromises after surgery is when you look at a patient and they look totally fine. And then five minutes later, they are not alive because their breathing is not enough oxygen to keep them alive. And a nurse, an experienced nurse looking at a patient cannot detect that that's happening. So you have to predict in advance of the surgery that it might happen. And then you have to use sensors that have high false alarm rates, but actually pay more attention to them for that cohort to to figure out what's going on. And so we start by asking anesthesiologists, how might you predict that there might be a problem later? And one of their answers is, well, if they had a problem the last surgery. (laughs) So if somebody's had respiratory compromise in the past, they're probably going to have it again, or they might have it again. It turns out finding that out is nearly impossible from the electronic health record data. It's either in the operating room that is in a PDF format, so it's not searchable, or else nobody wrote a note on it, or else, um, you know, it was done three years ago at a different hospital and you don't have access to that data. So I think if we simply put the NDM researchers onto what are the strategies, then we can start saying, okay, so what are the barriers to using these strategies on the technical side? Love it. Yeah. Yeah. The leverage point. (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. Um, Okay. Who are three people who have influenced your thinking or inspired you? Oh, that's a great question. Well, Dave Woods, Dave Woods, Dave Woods, Dave Woods, Dave Woods. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I was an undergrad uh, working with Patty Jones, who was fabulous, who brought me into the field. And she said, if you can work with Dave Woods, go work with Dave Woods. And so she let me go. And so I got my master's and PhD with him at Ohio State University. I can't tell you how many times people came up to me and said, how did you get to work with him? I mean, it was just you know, life-changing. And at one point, I remember distinctly a conversation with Richard Cook where I said, I think all I'm doing is like explaining what Dave Wood says that people don't really get because he uses big words. And uh, it talks really fast. (laughs) (laughs) Hard to understand sometimes. 
And um, he said, Emily, that's all we do. The entire field is channeling Dave. So I don't know if that's still true anymore. I think there's now many more contributors. But I think at the time I started, certainly in healthcare and probably in more domains, he was a super big voice. And I just, you know, I was shaped by him dramatically. After I graduated, Steve Ash is somebody that a lot of people don't know. So he's, uh, well, I mean, people in healthcare know him, <laughs> but he's an incredibly prominent Stanford uh, professor, researcher, dean person um, who is very well known in the Veterans Health Administration. He has a prominent role there. And people said, how did you get him as a mentor? So he was a mentor on my career development award. And I honestly don't know how I got him. I just lucked out. And he taught me so many things. And he didn't know a thing about human factors engineering. In the beginning, he used to introduce me as we're all human. And Emily can help us figure out how to overcome our humanness. Um, (laughs) He was one of the people that I'm like, okay. (laughs) I actually made him go to the human factors engineering conference (laughs) to try and work. I tried to figure out what our field was. Um, But, you know, he learned quickly. He's a smart guy. But he, he is, just had so much impact on me in terms of health services research, how to make things translational. And one of the things he taught me was to truly be a mixed methods researcher. So to be as good at the quantitative as the qualitative. And I guess I, I sort of thought at the time, oh, you just do qualitative, like in the expert and that, and that's good enough. But I think in healthcare, you really do kind of need to do both. And then um, Bob Weir's is just uh, so many things. I, yeah. you know, I, I, if I had to pick somebody who I wanted to be, it would be Bob. I felt like he was um, an incredible uh, servant of the NDM community. Literally, there was nobody he wouldn't help. And he would, um, you know, try and make connections between clinical people and even factors people. So one of the things that I try to do, copying him and putting his legacy forward, is push human factors, engineering, and naturalistic decision-making methods into the healthcare community and view that as a service. So how do I mentor people and get them in, uh, which is something that I, I feel like he did on the doctor side. So he would tell doctors what books to read. So I'm trying to tell naturalistic decision-making people how to get into healthcare. Very nice, very nice. I have one last question for you. I'm gonna ask you to tell us two truths about yourself and one lie, and then Brian and I are both gonna to try to guess which one is the lie. All right, I'm ready for this. <laughs> I'm ready for this question. I'm gonna get you. Rumor has it that you tend to guess the right ones. You're not gonna get it. All right, here we go. <laughs> All right. The rumors are true. <laughs> here we go, number one. I did a dance with a corn snake in the musical Carnival as Princess Olga, a seductive snake charming mistress in my high school play. Number two, my worm received an award in a pet talent contest in Libertyville, Illinois. (laughs) Number three, I met my husband when we were both graduate students and we were engaged for more than a year so that I could have us introduced as doctor and doctor and not doctor and Mrs. at our wedding. <laughs> hmm. Uh, you're going to have to go first, Brian. No, that is not <laughs> the way it works. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is, this is hard. Um, 
but I, um, I am doubting that you had an award-winning worm. Brian, I'm going to make you guess, right? But don't I make you guess before? Yeah, I... yeah. Brian has to guess before you give us the answer. I was going to go with the worm too. That whole high school play thing sounds incredibly elaborate. Um, and I've never met your husband. And I have to pick something that Laura did not pick. Uh, I'm gonna go with the I'm gonna go with the uh, corn snake dance. That sounds like you spent a lot of time trying to throw us off with that one. Brian's right. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, uh, so I was Princess Olga in the musical carnival in high school. I was supposed to do a dance, um, but it was going to be with a fake snake. So you said you were supposed to do dances if it didn't come off. Right. They cut it. Oh. <laughs> yeah, they cut it. Um, I, I think it might have potentially been a little bit, you know, um, I'm not sure it would pass the political correctness test. I see. I see. Right. <laughs> but, but so you really did have a pet worm. <laughs> I did. And, and I was interviewed. I think I was 10. And I was interviewed about the, it won the most disgusting award. Um, and, and the newspaper interviewed me about it. Wow. <laughs> but I picked up the worm on the way to the contest and I dropped the worm after the contest was over. So. <laughs> it was only a pet for about two hours. <laughs> Wow. Well, this is our best, our best version of this question yet, Emily. That, that, right. was, that was great. <laughs> so with that, I want to thank you, Emily, for speaking with us today. This has really, really been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's really, really neat to talk to you guys. Thanks. And so to our audience, thank you for joining us uh, for the NDM podcast. I'm Laura Militello. And I'm Brian Moon. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.